Everybody else, if you would turn to Daniel 2. Good morning. This is a better view than I had last week from my hospital bed staring at uh, the new Kroger over there. So I'm, I like to see this a little bit better. So I uh, appreciate your prayers very much. Uh, I go to see my doctor tomorrow. Uh, primary care, and then the way they will figure out probably sometime between four to six weeks, uh, I'll have surgery. And but if you would continue to pray, it's a it's a miracle. I think a testimony of prayer that I'm I'm here this morning, and so um, very grateful to be here. Y'all ready to study His Word? Uh, God has. Uh, I wanted to share this last week, um, but I was delayed, and so um, so uh, God has a specific word for us this morning that I think will be really good. There are two books of the Bible, and they are in the Old Testament, and there are two books that don't mention the name God in them. It doesn't mean that God's not involved in it. It's just the name G-O-D uh, is not there. And that is uh, the book of Song of Solomon. And the story probably likely of Solomon's uh, first marriage with his first wife. And then the book of Esther. And we're going to look at that. And again, just because God's name is not mentioned doesn't mean that God's not active and God is not doing something. Because we will see today that God is going to show himself in many mighty ways uh, in the life of Esther. I want to put today's text in the right context so that you and I can understand historically what is happening and taking place. And so, um, if you'll remember, Israel was div- became a divided kingdom. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The Assyrians came in uh, and took the ten tribes, which were the northern kingdom, and kind of took them away, and they were scattered, and they were gone. And the remaining what was left was Judah, uh, which was the southern kingdom. And because of the rebellion of Israel and Judah, uh, God had, told, had, had spoken to Judah and said, Listen, I'm going to send you away for 70 years, and you're going to be in exile. And so the context of our story is kind of at the end of that exile, and, and some of the Jews are coming back. But at the beginning of that, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, who had come into Jerusalem and laid siege upon the city, took about 18 months to two years, and they finally captured the city. And then they took a lot of those Jews um, to, with them to Babylon. And then over time, as kingdoms go, it takes about 200 years ago or so, but um, that was not the case with Babylon. It was kind of toward the end of Babylon's great reign. Persia comes in. The Persian and the Medes Mede people, which is for us that would be modern day Iran today, be the same group of people that Jonah about 700 years, excuse me, 300 years, uh, about three to 400 years earlier, Jonah had gone and preached to the Ninevites. They were Assyrians. But our context here is, is uh, much later than when Jonah had gone to Nineveh to preach uh, to the people there. So look with me in uh, Daniel chapter 2, and, and I think you'll find this. Does anybody like history this morning? We're going to do, do a little history in the beginning so we can kind of see when we get to Esther, how does all this fit into? And one of the great things I love about God's Word and I love about archaeology today and science today is that there are better tools today in regard to archaeology and, and science, and they are discovering more and more things of the ancient world and finding out that what the Bible has to say about those things is actually true. And it's just really um, giving much more credibility to the reality um, of the Scripture, stuff that we know, but secular minds like to protest against that and fight, and fight against it. So, uh, Carl, go ahead and put the 
put that slide up there. I want to show you a slide here. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel is there, and it's in Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar brings all of his wise people there and dream interpreters, and nobody can understand the dream, and he's got a vision of this statue. And we'll read the text here in a moment, but, this, but the vision was is that, that God was communicating to Nebuchadnezzar, here is what I am doing with the governments of the world, and here's what I'm doing with my people. And the statue represented the powers of government in that part of the world that were coming to be. And so in the statue, there was a head of gold, which represented uh, the kingdom of Babylon. The next, it was chest and arms of silver, which is, in our context today, we're going to look at in the text, um, the Medes and the Persians. Next was the, bo- the, the belly and the thighs of bronze, which became ancient Greece. And then the legs of iron, which became the ancient kingdom of Rome. And then there were feet of clay and iron, which were a number of different kingdoms moving forward in the future, uh, kind of put together. And then there was a last one that we'll read today, that there was a rock that had been hewn, but not with human hands. It was something that God had done, and that rock would destroy all of these other kingdoms. And so, if you would, look with me, Daniel. Uh, I need to get there, Daniel, chapter 2. And follow along with me, and we will be in verse 31. Daniel 2:31. So Daniel is interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and he said, "You saw, O king, behold a great image, and this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening." The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and all the gold and together all the pieces became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried away carried them away so that you could not trace, a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then Daniel says, this, this, this was the dream. Now, king, I'm going to tell you its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given you the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, that the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you ruler of them all, you are the head of gold. Now watch this, because this has everything to do with what we're going to talk about today. Daniel is telling him, listen, God has risen you up to be the head of gold. God has done this. This is not a work that you've done, Nebuchadnezzar. This is not inherent of your own power. God has done this. 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like that iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. 
And it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw, a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So as we come to the text, you can go ahead and turn to Esther, the book of Esther now um, to be ready. So as we come to this text today, in the historical aspect connected to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we are dealing with, with the Medes and the Persians. So Babylon had come to this great rise. The Persians as well had done so, particularly under King Cyrus. King Cyrus came in, captured Babylon. They got a lot of the Jews and they took them back to Persia. And under Cyrus's reign in Persia, he begins to allow the Jews to go back to their land. And as they go back, they go back in three waves. First wave with Zerubbabel. Next wave with Ezra, the priest. And Zerubbabel goes back and they begin to rebuild the temple. Ezra goes back and there's a restoration and connected with the law. And then we know that Nehemiah comes back. And Nehemiah rebuilds the walls around the city of Jerusalem. In the midst of all of that, there is a story that's taking place in Persia. During the exile, some of them have gone back because we know that they began to go back under Cyrus's reign. But this kingdom of the Persians was a powerful kingdom. Most likely, it was the largest of all the ancient kingdoms, the largest kingdom that was there. It's been estimated that about 50 million people lived within this kingdom, all the way from northern Africa and Libya, all the way up to Pakistan. Um, the kingdom of Persia ruled and reigned over that land. They had gone into some parts of Europe as well, and we will see uh, in just a moment that they were going down into southern Europe, into Greece, uh, to take over and try and take over um, the place there. So the Greeks came to, um, the Persians came to power, and it lasted about 200 years. And I think this is interesting to note if you're a student of history. Most nations come to power and they begin to crumble at about the 200-year mark. And they crumble at the 200-year mark, not because of some outside enemy. Where do they begin to crumble? From within. They begin to fall apart morally. And every one of those, from Babylon to Persia uh, to the Greeks to the Romans, um, the ultimate enemy was not an outside enemy. The ultimate enemy was the sin in man's hearts. They began to crumble the foundation of society which is the family and morality and godliness, and, and uh, that began to happen with them as well. In 490 B.C., King Darius, um, who was a son of King Cyrus, there had been a couple other kings before he came to power uh, for just a brief time, but Darius wanted Greece, and he wanted Greece to be brought into the kingdom. And so in 490 B.C., he begins the march on Athens. And as he gets to Athens, uh, there is a battle that takes place, and um, he has some defeats that are there and that happen and take place, and he is pushed back, and he has to go back to Persia. Well, this has greatly wounded his ego. And he gets back to Persia, and Darius thinks to himself, and just by way of reminder, if you're wondering who Darius is, Darius is the king that put Daniel in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6. So we're talking about real historical kings with real biblical emphasis, uh, real things that happen. And so Darius gets back to Persia, and he thinks to himself, I want Greece. His pride has been wounded, and so he takes four years of military planning, and they're going to go back to Greece, and he's going to conquer. But in the midst of that, a revolt happens in Egypt, 
And so he kind of has to turn his attention to Egypt to kind of deal with that. Once that kind of gets settled, his attention is back to Greece, and he's got his army together, he's, and he's on his way to Greece, and Darius dies. Well, Darius has a son. His Greek name, if you remember history, is Xerxes. Uh, his Hebrew name is Ahuzeris. This king, Xerxes Ahuzeris, becomes the husband of Esther. Well, he's not quite as passionate about Greece like his father because his pride has not been wounded. And he has to deal with what's happening and taking place in Egypt. And so he spends about four years dealing with that. But then it comes time and he thinks, okay, it's now time to deal with Greece and we want to bring them into the kingdom. And so he takes 250,000 soldiers with him. And they are in southern Turkey, just about to march into uh, northern Greece. And they begin the process of doing that. Uh, history records for us a number of military campaigns that happen at this particular point in time. But that five-year delay of Persia having to go back and before they came with Darius's death and Xerxes planning and dealing with Egypt allowed Greece to kind of rebuild itself and to be ready and prepared for things. And, and so one of some of the most famous battles that took place under Xerxes' reign was the Battle of Thermopylae. Thermopylae, uh, which is, if you'll remember, with the 300 Spartans. Uh, it was also connected to a marathon uh, before that where the guy ran the 26 miles to, to get word out. These people are coming. There was also the Battle of Salamis where most of the Persian army, or navy, excuse me, um, was obliterated. And so his great heart to bring Greece into the kingdom of Persia was defeated and he was pushed back into Greece. And the reason I wanted to, or excuse me, back into Persia, and the reason I wanted to tell you this was simply this, is that history, do not be afraid of history and do not be afraid of the Scripture. The Bible has been proven for hundreds and thousands of years now, not hundreds of thousands of years, but the Bible has been proven for hundreds of years and into thousands of years, and it's continually doing so, that it is true. And so we will see today this story of Esther and Ahuzeris, and he has been, he's back in Persia, and we're going to take a look at what's happening and taking place with that. So look with me in Esther chapter 1. Are you all ready? we got a lot of reading to do, so we're going to zip through this. I had to learn a little bit from the first service, and so y'all are the benefits of the time frame from the first service. So, well, actually, we don't have a third service, so we're not in a rush, are we? Some people get hungry, Brad. Yeah, so. All right, let's look. Esther 1, let's read 1 through 4. Now, the days of Ahuzeris, the Ahuzeris who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. And in those days when King Ahuzeris sat on his royal throne in Zusa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. And the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. And here's his purpose. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people of present in Zusa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days. So you got 187 days of partying. And they were 
White cotton curtains, verse 6 says, and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold. Couches of gold. I mean, just listen to the lavishness and ridiculousness and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble and mother of pearl and precious stones and drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and drinking was according to this edict there is no compulsion in other words no restrictions for the king had given orders to all of his staff in the palace that each man could do as he desired and queen vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to king ahuzeris i just want to take a moment and i want to deal with one point that i think is really important because I think sometimes we as believers here in the West, we really wrestle with this. And sometimes we can lose some perspective on this. And it's simply this. I want to remind us. Time, time is in God's hands. It's not in a government's hands. It's not in any kind of man's authority. It's not based in man's laws. Time rests in God's hands. And so God, in this vision to Nebuchadnezzar was allowing these kingdoms to rise up. And God has always done this. As a matter of fact, the Scripture affirms this in several places. God is the one who raises up kings and takes down kings. He, he the psalmist says, runs his fingers like a stream into the heart of a king and turns the heart of the king whichever way God wants to do so. And so all of this has been done in the sovereign wisdom and providential plan of God, that there are kingdoms that rise up and God has allowed them to rise up and there are kingdoms that fall and God allows them to fall. And in the midst of it all, I want to remind you and I of this. No matter who is in charge of our country, no matter who it is, God is still on His throne and time belongs to Him. And while we may not see What are you up to, God? Why have you allowed this? Why are these laws being passed? Why is this happening? While you and I may not be able to put those puzzle pieces together, God is. And it's on a time frame that we can't see, and it may not be even in our lifetime. And so it communicates to us, we should trust God in the midst of the reality of all of that. He is the one doing the rising. He is the one doing the tearing down. And we are to trust Him in the midst of it all. And so, so that is important. And if you were a Jew living in Persia, even though some of the exiles had gone back and there's a rebuilding of the temple that was taking place, you might have looked around and going, God, what is God up to in Persia? We've got this crazy king who wants to take over the world. And, and now we've had, we've had 187 days of partying. And it's in the streets, and there's just excess of everything. And so, what do believers do in a world like that? Well, here's what God does. God is always at work behind the scenes, and He is working most of the time in ordinary people, preparing the way and getting them ready, because He's going to find people who are going to say yes to Him, and walk with Him, and trust Him, no matter what comes. And when it seems as if God is silent and our feelings are, God, 
do you get what's going on around us? Do you see the crumbling of this nation? Do you see the crumbling of this? And God, did, did you hear what they're saying? Our government is saying, and the Supreme Court has decided, and this has been done. When it kind of seems like we, we sense that, God, where are you? I just want to remind you, he promised us that he would never leave us and forsake us. That he has never changed. That he's not freaking out. He's never had a panic moment ever. Ever has God had a panic moment. And as a, as a young Christian, I heard a pastor say this, and I think it wasn't biblically correct. And for many years of my life, that's why you need to check what we say to you, it kind of shaped my life and, and led to a false understanding of God for me. And this is what the pastor said, that God is this great chess master, that man makes this move, and then God counters the move. No, God just moves. Man can do whatever man wants to do. And God's movement is not based on what we decide. Right now in this moment, God can just move and he can do something regardless of us. And if he can't do that, be much harder to trust him, wouldn't he? Wouldn't it? And so God has risen up this kingdom. It's a crazy, chaotic kingdom in Persia. But you see, God's never silent. If God has spoken in Scripture, watch this, because God's word is alive. If he has spoken in Scripture, guess what it means? He is still speaking. So we, go, so we might say, God, do you have something for us? And God would say, yes, I do. I've already spoken. And so read my word because what I have said means this is what I have spoken. And you can stand on it and you can bank on it. Carl, would you put Job 42 too, up there? Look at this. Job came to this conclusion at the very end after everything that he had gone through. And he said this about God. He said, God, I know that you can do all things. You can do whatever you want to do, God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so I would ask the question this morning, do we believe that? Do we stand and embrace the truth of this? And we need to stand there. So I want to remind you and I today, Donald Trump does not control anything. Nancy Pelosi does not control anything. God does. And while we may not agree with what he does or she does or whoever crazy politician wants to say stuff, and they're all crazy. I'm just telling you, they're just crazy. They can say what they want to say. We see through the fluff. And our foundation is not based on man's wisdom. It is based on what God has spoken and who he is. So I want to remind us, time is in God's hands. Secondly, this morning, um, this kingdom of Persia is very much like us. In 2003, uh, we were missionaries in Germany, and I was asked to go to a place called We Learn where all the new missionaries that year came, and I was asked to speak. And, and so I, they wanted me to come kind of speak uh, to the new missionaries about life in Europe and wh- how they needed to see things. And, and God eventually led me to this text in Esther. And so I want to share some things. I, and by the way, there's nothing new under the sun. I'm about to share some things with you. Uh, and here we are thousands and thousands of years later after the Persian Empire, and America is just like Persia. So let me share something with you. 
Persia was a place and, and it was a time that was centered on the glory of man. So we just read a while ago all the way through verse 8. It was a time of party and it was a time of lavishness. It was a time of no restraint. Um, and so Ahasuerus throws this great party because he wants to show off the riches of his glory. And he wants to show, listen, I'm great, which is in some ways laughable. He's not earned anything that he's gotten. He's been defeated twice, big time by the Greeks. Everything that he's got, he's gotten from his father. His father had earned, and actually his grandfather, Cyrus, had earned. And so it did all come to him. He hadn't earned anything, but he thinks he's great, and he's in the capital, and he's just partying. And for 180 days, he gathers all of his big officials, and they just celebrate his greatness and make a big deal about him for about six months and then they want to take it to the streets and for seven days this big street party happens and takes place and so what is a believer to do when a culture and a society focuses all of its energy on the glory of man what do we do well we faithfully live for the glory of God in the midst of that we just stand in it and we embrace it let me give you some things about Persia that the text tells us it was a place marked by excess of possessions and decorations. I mean, just crazy lavishness. Does, do, does anybody really need a couch of gold? And don't, don't raise your hand this morning. We're going to come thump you on the head. <laughs> Couches of gold and silver. Special goblets made for alcohol drinking. So not only was there an excess of possessions, but there was an excess of alcohol. And the royal wine just said this. They made a rule that just said this. Everybody do whatever you want to do. Drink as much as what you want to drink all over the city. Can you imagine what that city looked like? Capital city. Everybody in the streets. Everybody in their houses. Seven days. Unhindered party. Government's doing it. People in the streets are doing it. Well, here's what happens in a land of excess. Is that physical tangible things become such a focus and there's a devaluing of human life and so a little bit later the king's really really drunk and he wants to parade his wife in he wants to call his wife in and he wants to show her off in front of all of his drunk buddies so they send word to her and she's like "Uh, -uh, i ain't going i don't blame her i don't blame her one bit she didn't want to go in that environment she's having her own party with her own women and with, and they're just celebrating, and she's not going to go in. And, and he places a superficial value on his wife. You know, I look around our country today, and that is our country. We value people based on dress size, weight, hair, style, whatever the case may be. And it's ridiculous. There was also this rule given of no restraint. We live in that time today as well. Where just more and more people are saying, it's, this, is the, this is kind of the unwritten law of the land. Hey, you can't tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want to do. You can't place those restraints on me. And so they made this rule, no restraints. No restraints. Two other things to point out about Persia that are applicable to our nation. There was this, un, this crazy, unhealthy focus on beauty in Persia. It happens with Vashti, and it's going to happen with Esther, we will see in just a moment. And I believe a culture with a lack of restraint leads to a world of extremes, where there is an overemphasis on superficial 
things like beauty and power and influence. And we live in a day today where there's an unending quest to keep ourselves looking and feeling younger all the while we are aging and getting older. And basically the philosophy is age, but just don't look like you are aging. Now, I'm going to go any further than that. I think we ought to be healthy. I think all of that kind of stuff. But listen, just want to remind us, our world communicates to little girls that they got to dress a certain way, look a certain way to have some kind of value. And they don't. They've been made in the image of God. Is there anything more awesome than that? We men have done so. We've been taught as boys to be this, say like this, talk like this. And, and there's just this unhealthy focus on beauty and lesser status that has nothing to do with the true value of people. And I think unrestrained freedom with no boundaries eventually leads to what happens in Persia here. Vashti says, I'm not coming. Go tell the king. Go tell my husband. I'm not coming in to be paraded. And the king becomes enraged. And this anger leads to this craziness that all the men gathered around Ahasuerus that day have a panic moment. And here's what happens. Look around our country. Are we not angry? There's never been a time in the history of this nation where anger and frustration has just filled us in such a way that we just don't know what to do with it. And what happens is this uncontrolled anger that's not submitted to the glory of God leads to decisions of lunacy. And here's why. So here's what happens. Vashti says, I'm not coming. Uh Uh-oh, crisis in the kingdom. Everybody in the room with Ahuzerah says, King, we got a problem. If the queen's not going to come in, all the other women in the 127 provinces, they're going to say to their husbands, well, if the king doesn't, if the queen doesn't have to come in, then I don't have to come in to my husband. We We got a woman crisis that's about to erupt in the Persian kingdom, and we got to do something. And so watch this. They have this big meeting right there and then in this crisis moment, and they pass a law. Every woman has to obey their husband. She got to do what he says, come when he asks, etc., etc., etc. And here's what governments do, and it's what our government has done. We have passed laws that deal with behavior but not the heart. And as long as you just deal with, if you're a parent, you know this, you can deal with the behavior, you can kind of curtail it, but if the heart doesn't ever change, does the behavior really change? Not really. But when the heart changes, the behavior follows that in obedience and compliance. And we live, I think, in a time so centered on the glory of man that we look like ancient Persia. I mean, our, our government makes some of the most ridiculous laws, some of the just, just crazy, crazy things. So time is in his hands, and God has allowed this time with Ahuzeris to be there because he's, gonna, he's doing something behind the scenes. Go with me now, chapter 2, verse 1. 
So after these things, when the anger of King Ahuzeris had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Let me just stop there just for a moment. Uh, It's not a debate in a bad way, but there's just been speculation that between the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 1, that this is potentially when Ahuzeris goes to try and conquer Greece. And so that there's a time period of a while, several years, where they, they march on Greece and, the, and all of these battles happen and takes place. And he comes back, and it's when he comes back that he's like, okay, I'm not married anymore. Um, and so uh, he starts thinking about Vashti again. And so there's a possibility that that is kind of the time frame that is there, even though the text doesn't tell us that. Um, some things from history kind of lead its, lend itself kind of that direction. But anyway, all right, look at verse 2. So he remembers her. Verse 2, and then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Zuza, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti, and this pleased the king, and he did so. And I just want to touch on this just for a moment because it has so much application to our day. If he comes back from the war and things kind of settle down and he's there in the palace and he's looking around and he's going, man, I'm not married. He thinks about Vashti. And I think the indication there is he thinks positively about her and I think he probably thought, you know what? We grossly overreacted that night. But everybody around him said, no, 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 King, you've made the law. Instead of... Everybody around him saying, no, reconcile this marriage. Get this right. They just said, no, you need somebody fresh. You need somebody new. Let's just move on, discard the marriage, and move on. And I think we live in that day today where there's a view of marriage of just discarding it, that it can be tossed aside for the idea of get me something new because something new will be better. And the reality is, not just in that, we know this from other areas of life, the grass is not always greener on the other side, is it? It's just not. You get there and it's just not. What we thought was bad on this side, you get over there, like, oh, no. And so they, all everybody around him says, no, don't do it. Don't reconcile. You need virgins. You need something fresh. And by the way, I'll just point this out. ABC did not start, start The Bachelor. It started in ancient Persia. And so they have the first bachelor right here in ancient Persia with 300 young virgins, and it's devastating. It's devastating when the leaders of a nation discard marriage. And I don't know where you stand on the homosexual issue, and the Supreme Court's, Court's ruling several years ago. But the devastating effect about the legalization of homosexual marriage has everything to do with biblical marriage and the destruction of that and the attack upon that. And so that is something we are to be concerned about. And so if you think, oh, that's just long time ago, crazy ancient Persia. No, it's 2019 in February. That's where we live. That's where we live. Well, God is at work. And look at verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai. 
the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, uh, among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he was bringing up Hadassah, her name means Myrtle, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother, and the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as, her, as his own daughter. So they're cousins. He's obviously older, and he brings her in, and he raises her. So when the king's order and edict was, um, were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken in the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food. It was seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And Esther had not yet made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the time came for each woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months, you talk about spas, this is a spa right here. After being 12 months under the regulations of the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months of oil and myrrh and six months with spices, for women, a whole year's worth. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashagaz and the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. But when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in all of the eyes of those who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king and to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast and also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now watch what happens here. Two unique people are in two strategic places. And this is what God does. So you look at America today and just the chaos and the laws and family breakdown and all of the stuff that's there what's God doing in America right now I think he's speaking to people like Mordecai and Esther and I think they're everywhere these are not royal lineage people these are just common people and God's going to use them because he's moving his plan providentially along and so Mordecai has access to the king's gate to listen and to be at a strategic place. Esther now is going to be at a strategic place. She's going to be the only Jew who has the ear of the king. And while we don't even know what's going to happen, we know that there's about to be this proclamation to slaughter the entire Jewish race. And God is moving and God is working behind the scenes to get two people where he wants them so that he can accomplish his his move and his work and his plan to save God's people. And I want to remind you and I, again, time is in whose hands? God's. So 
Nobody can see what God's doing, but God's doing all of this. Nobody knows that the king has just married a Jew. Nobody knows this. God knows it. Mordecai knows it. Maybe a few others know. But God is at work and God's doing this thing because God knows that down the road, he's going to have to have people in a strategic place to do a strategic work. So Mordecai's at the gates and he listens to what's happening and taking place there and he learns of this plan. So here's what I would say to you and I today who live in a land of chaos, a land of brokenness. If you, I don't want you to do this, but the Grammys are tonight. If you want to see lavishness and ridiculousness, you would see the Grammys tonight. And you would see that we live in a kingdom that glorifies man and man's flesh. And it will be on display tonight for several hours, sadly. And I would stay away. I would stay away. Well, this has always been the case. The world doesn't love God and the world doesn't always love God's people. And so we enter into a time in the text of a blatant disregard for God's people. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. We know that Mordecai in, in chapter 2, 19 through 23. Actually, we probably ought to read that. Actually, let's read that 2, 19. And we'll get into 3. Now, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. And Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. And in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on gallows. And the story of Mount Mordecai was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. We'll come back to that later. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And so they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, and he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And look at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. And their laws are different from those of every other people. And they don't keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And so if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those in charge of the king's business so that they may be put into the king's treasuries. So the king took a signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha and the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as what seems to you. And there is a decree to wipe out the Jews in 127 provinces. Now I want to just point out a few things. 
I think we live in a time of blatant disregard for God's people. I feel it. You probably feel it at your business. If you're a student at school, you hear it through some of the teaching and other things that happen and take place sometimes in your class. But a couple things I want to point out here. Don't ever bow to men. For if you bow to men, they become your God. And it, the appearance is there that some of the Jews were bowing to Haman each day. And, and, and Mordecai said, I'm not doing that. And sometimes our not bowing is going to create tension and we will be put to the test. And our refusal to cave will not always be the safest choice, but it is the right choice. And so Mordecai decides, I'm just not going to do it. And it costs him. And so was he wrong in refusing to bow? Um, even because his refusal to bow brought about this idea of let's kill all the Jews. No, it wasn't wrong. Because God, again, was working behind the scenes to do some things regardless of what decisions were being made. And God will continue to do this. But ethnic cleansing has been declared in the land and chaos breaks out. The Jews are weeping. Mordecai hears about it. And, and there's just craziness that goes out that all the Jews in the kingdom of Persia are going to be killed. And you know what Haman and Ahasuerus do? They make this law, put the signet ring in there, and declare, let's kill the Jews. And they sit down to a drink. And they drink over the potential slaughter that would come on a certain date of the Jewish people. And I just want to be blatantly honest this morning. Since 1973, there have been nearly 62 million slaughtering of children abortions in this country. 62 million. That's people that would be sitting in this room today. And you know what our politicians do? They sit and drink. And they celebrate the destruction and the value of life. And I look at our country sometimes and I just, I just wonder, God, we need you to do something. And I think we need to remember that while we can't see it, he is at work. And we have to trust in that. And we need to be the ones who say, I'm going to get right. Not, boy, boy, I hope Paul Davis gets his life right. <laughs> Sorry, he's in my line of vision. <laughs> no, I need to say, Doke Taylor needs to get things right. And Paul needs to say, he needs to get his life right. And if we all take a self-examination in the midst of a land of chaos and see that we are here for a strategic time and purpose in the critical moments of our nation, maybe we would be ready for God to do something. Well, God is always at work. Mordecai hears this. And look at chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and the decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. 
and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And here's what I want to say, and it's, it's a lesson from Mordecai. It is time for you and I to be broken for God's people. And that's what Mordecai does. He's broken over the decree about the Jews, and he takes his brokenness, watch this, he takes his brokenness to the streets, and he cries out to God in a public place. And it's, he dresses in line with the condition of his heart in sackcloth. And just says, God, you got to do something. And so Mordecai teaches us sometimes we take our brokenness to the streets of the city. And so here's Mordecai. He goes. He embraces this life of risk. But what about Esther? What's Esther going to do? Let's see what happens. So Mordecai's out in the city streets, and word gets to Esther about crazy cousin out in the street, dressed, dressed weird. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed, and so she sent clothing to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. And he called for Hathach, one of the king's units who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to, and, and, and she ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what is going on. Verse 6, so Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hattak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Hattak and said, Go back to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except for the one whom the king holds out the scepter that he may live. But for me, I haven't even seen my husband in 30 days. Verse 12, And when they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai said, i got a word for Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance, it's going to rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Zuzah and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days or night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And I, if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. See, both of them embraced this idea of, okay, maybe I have to risk. And I need to see my life. This is a time of strategic placing of my life. And I want to point out something here. And I want to speak from a father of two daughters. Our nation really devalues women. Um, just go to the magazine stores and just go to Walmart and just glance at a cover. And I look at our world and I look in this room and there's some beautiful people in this room. I don't put myself on the list. But if you are beautiful and the world recognizes it, here's the lesson from Esther. That is not for your glory. 
it is to be used for God's glory. God made Esther to be beautiful, to make her stand out so that he would get her to where he wanted her to be. It was for a, her, watch this, her beauty was for a spiritual purpose. It was not for a selfish purpose. And we live in a world that so pushes craziness of superficiality that's just not authentic. If you're beautiful, if you're handsome, great for you, some of us can't relate. But if you are, boy, you better not ever be arrogant about that. Don't flaunt it on social media. Don't take pictures that do so. That do so. But live in such a way that says, I am a young woman, I am a young man who gets it that I've been made by God. And so the way I look is because he's done this, because I haven't done it. And I want to live in such a way that it honors him. And that's just not for looks. That's Some of us have unique insight about how to run a business that other people don't have. Well, you use that the way God made you for God's glory. He has made us not for, look at me, look at me. He's made us to say, look at him, at the greatness of who he is. So basically, that's what Mordecai's telling her. Listen, you've risen up to this place because you stood out, but God was behind all of this to get you there to save his people. And so Esther says, listen, it's time for God to intervene, and so there's a fast that's called, and though God's name's not mentioned, there's not fasting in the Old Testament that doesn't include praying. So these are three days of, God, I've not seen my husband. You've got to open the door here, and if I perish, I perish. And so Esther steps in, and she encounters the king, and she makes these preparation of two banquets and eventually they get to the place where things happen all right look at me in chapter six and we're almost done verse one so chapter five verse nine and following um haman has had enough of mordecai and he wants to he wants to uh hang mordecai on the gallows and so he's got these big huge gallows that are that are built and he's going to hang mordecai on the next day And I want to show you the sovereign hand of God. I love God. I love the way God works things. Esther 6, verse 1. And on that night that Haman's building the gallows to get rid of Mordecai, the king could not sleep. Who do you think woke the king? Did he have indigestion? And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles that were read before the king. Now, this guy's smart. You ever wake up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep? Well, here's what Ahasuerus does. Bring some boring reading in here. And so they go and get the chronicles of the story of what happens, all the stuff that's been written is happening in the kingdom of Persia. So they go and get it. Verse 2. And it was found written. Is this a coincidence? They opened up the book, how Mordecai had told about Bichthana and Teresh, two of the king's units, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. 
And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is that in the court? Watch this. Watch how God's orchestrating things. Gallows are being built to hang Mordecai. King wakes up. He can't sleep. Hey, go get the book of the record of my kingdom. They come in, open up the book. They start reading. Guess who it's about on that page? Mordecai. Guess who now has entered in the palace? Well, the one who's building the gallows to kill Mordecai. God, watch, is orchestrating all of this stuff. And so, here we are. And, and so, verse 4, And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And he said, Well, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, Hey, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king like to like to honor more than me? I mean, I'm Haman. Seven. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, but let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that he has ridden, the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man, whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then he said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, and leave nothing out that you have mentioned. Can you imagine the hard swallowing that is just done at that moment by Haman? So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, He dressed Mordecai. The gallows are being built, by the way. And led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and covered his head. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said, If Mordecai, before me you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. I want you to watch this. Sometimes in our lives, believers, there's delayed reward from God. Mordecai did the right thing several months ago, whenever it was, by telling of the plot to kill King Ahasuerus. Nobody blessed him there. Why? Watch this. Because God was going to bring the honor later. Sometimes in our lives, we give me the pat now. And God wants to wait. And He wants to wait and He wants to bring that blessing at a later time. And we need to trust Him in that. We just need to be willing to be obedient and to do the right thing. And so here's one who wasn't honored, but now He did the right thing and He has been honored. And through this reality, Esther goes in and the, <coughs> the door is opened. And Esther, <coughs> excuse me, and Esther is able to speak to the king. And God does a work by saving the Jewish people. And I just <coughs> wrote some things down here. And I think we are going to have to be through, Brad. <coughs> I think the voice is gone. In this story, God used the rise of Persia. God used the party. God used Vashti's refusal. 
He used the anger of Ahasuerus. He used an unknown orphan girl raised by a cousin. He used the boys of the king. Mordecai's refusal to bow. Haman's rage at Mordecai. He used Esther's beauty. He got Mordecai to the right place to hear the plot. He had the right story written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings. He woke the king up. The royal record was read at the right place of Mordecai. And Esther was willing to say, if I perish, I perish. And all of that just proves that God is always at work. So here's what I would say to you and I today as we're done. <clears throat> so we're going to go home today and whatever we do, whatever's on our plate, whatever's on the agenda. And you may be like me, excited about disciple now, and you end up in the hospital. And you can't come to disciple now, and you can't preach last Sunday, and and you got surgery coming down the road, and something like that may happen to you this week. It may happen three months from now. It may happen a year from now. So how do, how do we understand the, the unknown aspects of the pieces of our life that come into our life? Well, we don't always know immediately. And here's the reality. Sometimes I have conversations with God and this finite mind that I have, I try to grasp the infinity of his mind. And it's just impossible. It's impossible. And so what do we have to do? We just have to say this. God, I don't understand everything that's going on. And so here's what I do. I'm just going to yield to you right now. Because time is in your hands. You're in sovereign control. And if you'll read the Old Testament and in the New Testament in church history <clears throat> from the second century on, God has always been at work. And I'm grateful that in the chaos of our nation, he's at work. I hope you know that. He's at work. Can we see it? Yeah, in some places we can. We can see it right here with several people's lives and what God's doing. And <clears throat> So yeah, he's at work. But he's looking for people who are willing to say yes. But the story also tells us this. He is good. He is good. The world rages, and God is good, accomplishing his purpose. And we can trust him. But we've got to be the kind of trust the people who believe that he's trustworthy and live in such a way in the midst of chaos that it's worth it to walk with him. I wish we had time to finish the whole book. You ought to finish it this afternoon. Read it during the Grammys tonight. Finish Esther. All right, let's pray.